Chapter Twelve of the Lamplighter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Lamplighter by Maria Susanna Cummins. Chapter Twelve. Let every minute, as it springs, convey fresh knowledge on its wings. Let every minute, as it flies, record thee good, as well as wise. Cotton. It was one pleasant evening in the latter part of April that Gertie, who had been to see Miss Graham and bid her good-bye before her departure for the country, stood at the back part of the yard weeping bitterly. She held in her hand a book and a new slate, Emily's parting gifts, but she had not removed the wrapper from the one, and the other was quite besmeared with tears. She was so full of grief at the parting. With her, the first of those many sad partings life is so full of. That she did not hear any one approach, and was unconscious of any one's presence, until a hand was placed upon each of her shoulders, and as she turned round, she found herself encircled by Willie's arms, and face to face with Willie's sunny countenance. Why, Gertie, said he, this is no kind of a welcome, when I've come home on a weeknight to stay with you all the evening. Mother and grandfather are both gone out somewhere. And then, when I come to look for you, you're crying so I can't see your face through such oceans of tears. Come, come, do leave off. You don't know how shockingly you look. Willie, sobbed she, do you know Miss Emily's gone? Gone where? Way off, six miles, to stay all summer. But Willie only laughed. Six miles? said he. That's a terrible way, certainly. But I can't see her any more, said Gertie. You can see her next winter, rejoined Willie. Oh, but that's so long, said the child. What makes you think so much of her? asked Willie. She thinks much of me. She can't see me, and she likes me better than anybody but Uncle True. I don't believe it. I don't believe she likes you half as well as I do. I know she don't. How can she, when she's blind and never saw you in her life? And I see you all the time, and love you better than I do anybody in the world. Except my mother. Do you really, Willie? Yes, I do. I always think when I come home, now I'm going to see Gertie, and everything that happens all the week, I think to myself, I shall tell Gertie that. I shouldn't think you'd like me so well. Why not? Oh, because you're so handsome, and I ain't handsome a bit. I heard Ellen Chase tell Lucretta Davis the other day that she thought Gertie Flint was the worst looking girl in the school. Then she ought to be ashamed of herself, said Willie. I guess she ain't very good looking. I should hate the looks of her, or any other girl that said that. Oh, Willie, exclaimed Gertie, earnestly, it's true, as true as can be. No, it ain't true, said Willie. To be sure, you haven't got long curls and a round face and blue eyes, like Belle Clinton's, and nobody'd think of setting you up for a beauty. But when you've been running and have rosy cheeks, and your great black eyes shine, and you laugh so heartily as you do sometimes at anything funny, I often think you're the brightest looking girl I ever saw in my life, and I don't care what other folks think as long as I like your looks. I feel just as bad when you cry, or anything's the matter with you, as if it were myself. And worse. George Bray struck his little sister Mary yesterday because she tore his kite. I should have liked to give him a flogging. I wouldn't strike you, Gertie, if you tore all my playthings to pieces. Such professions of affection on Willie's part were frequent, and always responded to by a like declaration from Gertie. Nor were they mere professions. The two children loved each other dearly. 
They were very differently constituted, for Willie was earnest, persevering, and patient, calm in his temperament, and equal in his spirits. Gertie, on the other hand, excitable and impetuous, was constantly thrown off her guard. Her temper was easily roused, her spirits variable, her whole nature sensitive to the last degree. Willie was accustomed to be loved, expected to be loved, and was loved by everybody. Gertie had been an outcast from all affection, looked not for it, and, except under favorable circumstances, and by those who knew her well, did not readily inspire it. But that they loved each other, there could be no doubt. And if in the spring the bond between them was already strong, autumn found it cemented by still firmer ties. For during Emily's absence, Willie filled her place, and his own too. And though Gertie did not forget her blind friend, she passed a most happy summer, and continued to make such progress in her studies at school, that when Emily returned to the city in October, she could hardly understand how so much had been accomplished in what had seemed to her so short a time. The following winter, too, was passed most profitably by Gertie. Miss Graham's kindly feeling towards her little protege, far from having diminished, seemed to have been increased by time and absence, and Gertie's visits to Emily became more frequent than ever. The profit derived from these visits was not all on Gertie's part. Emily had been in the habit, the previous winter, of hearing her read occasionally, that she might judge of her proficiency. Now, however, she discovered on the first trial that the little girl had attained to a greater degree of excellence in this accomplishment than is common among grown people. She read understandingly, and her accent and intonations were so admirable that Emily found rare pleasure in listening to her. Partly with a view to the child's benefit, and partly for her own gratification, she proposed that Gertie should come every day and read to her for an hour. Gertie was only too happy to oblige her dear Miss Emily, who, in making the proposal, represented it as a personal favor to herself, and a plan by which Gertie's eyes could serve for them both. It was agreed that when True started on his lamplighting expeditions, he should take Gertie to Mr. Graham's, and call for her on his return. Owing to this arrangement, Gertie was constant and punctual in her attendance at the appointed time, and none but those who have tried it are aware what a large amount of reading may be accomplished in six months, if only an hour is devoted to it regularly each day. Emily, in her choice of books, did not confine herself to such as come strictly within a child's comprehension. She judged rightly that a girl of such keen intelligence as Gertie was naturally endowed with would suffer nothing by occasionally encountering what was beyond her comprehension, but that, on the contrary, the very effort she would be called upon to make would enlarge her capacity and be an incentive to her genius. So history, biography, and books of travels were perused by Gertie at an age when most children's literary pursuits are confined to stories and pictures. The child seemed, indeed, to give the preference to this comparatively solid reading, and aided by Emily's kind explanations and encouragement, she stored up in her little brain many an important fact and much useful information. At Gertie's age the memory is strong and retentive, and things impressed on the mind then are usually better remembered than what is learned in after years, when the thoughts are more disturbed and divided. Her especial favorite was a little work on astronomy, which puzzled her more than all the rest put together, but which delighted her in the same proportion, for it made some things clear, and all the rest, though a mystery still, 
was to her a beautiful mystery, and one which she fully meant sometime to explore to the uttermost. And this ambition to learn more, and understand better, by and by, was, after all, the greatest good she derived. Awaken a child's ambition, and implant in her a taste for literature, and more is gained than by years of schoolroom drudgery, where the heart works not in unison with the head. From the time Gertie was first admitted, until she was twelve years old, she continued to attend the public schools, and was rapidly advanced and promoted. But what she learned with Miss Graham, and acquired by study with Willie at home, formed nearly as important a part of her education. Willie, as we have said, was very fond of study, and was delighted at Gertie's warm participation in his favorite pursuit. They were a great advantage to each other, for each found encouragement in the other's sympathy and cooperation. After the first year or two of their acquaintance, Willie could not be properly called a child, for he was in his fifteenth year, and beginning to look quite manly. But Gertie's eagerness for knowledge had all the more influence upon him. For if the little girl ten years of age was patient and willing to labor at her books until after nine o'clock, the youth of fifteen must not rub his eyes and plead weariness. It was when they had reached these respective years that they commenced studying French together. Willie's former teacher continued to feel a kindly interest in the boy, who had long been his best scholar, and who would certainly have borne away from his class the first prizes, had not a higher duty called him to inferior labors previous to the public exhibition. Whenever he met him in the street or elsewhere, he inquired concerning his mode of life, and whether he continued his studies. Finding that Willie had considerable spare time, he earnestly advised him to learn the French language, that being a branch of knowledge which would undoubtedly prove useful to him, whatever business he might chance to pursue in life, and offered to lend him such books as he would need at the commencement. Willie availed himself of his teacher's advice, and his kind offer, and began to study in good earnest. When he was at home in the evening, he was in the habit of coming into True's room, partly for the sake of quiet, for True was a quiet man, and had too great a veneration for learning to interrupt the students with his questions, and partly for the sake of being with Gertie, who was usually at that time occupied with her books. Gertie, as may be supposed, conceived a strong desire to learn French too. Willie was willing she should try, but had no confidence that she would long persevere. To his surprise, however, she not only discovered a wonderful determination, but a decided talent for language. And, as Emily furnished her with books similar to Willie's, she kept pace with him, oftentimes translating more during the week than he could find time to do. On Saturday evening, when they always had a fine study time together, True would sit on his old settle by the fire, watching Willie and Gertie, side by side at the table, with their eyes bent on the page, which to him seemed the greatest of earthly labyrinths. Gertie always looked out the words, in which employment she had great skill, her bright eyes diving, as if by magic, into the very heart of the dictionary, and transfixing the right word at a glance, while Willie's province was to make sense. Almost the only occasion when True was known to disturb them, by a word even, was when he first heard Willie talk about making sense. "'Making sense, Willie?' said the old man. "'Is that what you're after? Well, you couldn't do a better business. I'll warrant you a market for it. There's want enough on it in the world.' It was but natural that, under such favorable influences as Gertie enjoyed, with Emily to advise and direct, and Willie to aid and encourage, her intellect should rapidly expand and strengthen. 
but how is it with that little heart of hers, that at once warm and affectionate, impulsive, sensitive and passionate, now throbs with love and gratitude, and now again burns as vehemently with a consuming fire that a sense of wrong, a consciousness of injury, to herself or her friends, would at any moment enkindle. Has she, in two years of happy childhood, learned self-control? Has she also attained to an enlightened sense of the distinction between right and wrong, truth and falsehood? In short, has Emily been true to her self-imposed trust, her high resolve, to soften the heart and instruct the soul of the little ignorant one? Has Gertie learned religion? Has she found out God, and begun to walk patiently in that path which is lit by a holy light, and leads to rest? She has begun, and though her footsteps often falter, though she sometimes quite turns aside, and impatient of the narrow way, gives the rein to her old irritability and ill-temper, she is yet but a child, and there is the strongest foundation for hopefulness in the sincerity of her good intentions, and the depth of her contrition, when wrong has had the mastery. Emily has spared no pains in teaching her where to place her strong reliance, and Gertie has already learned to look to higher aid than Emily's, and to lean on a mightier arm. Miss Graham had appointed for herself no easy task, when she undertook to inform the mind and heart of a child utterly untaught in the ways of virtue. In some important points, however, she experienced far less difficulty than she had anticipated. For instance, after her first explanation to Gertie of the difference between honesty and dishonesty, the truth and a lie, she never had any cause to complain of the child, whose whole nature was the very reverse of deceptive, and whom nothing but extreme fear had ever driven to the meanness of falsehood. If Gertie's greatest fault lay in a proud and easily roused temper, that very fault carried with it its usual accompaniment of frankness and sincerity. Under almost any circumstances, Gertie would have been too proud to keep back the truth, even before she became too virtuous. Emily was convinced, before she had known Gertie six months, that she could always depend upon her word, and nothing could have been a greater encouragement to Miss Graham's unselfish efforts than the knowledge that truth, the root of every holy thing, had thus easily and early been made to take up its abode in the child. But this sensitive, proud temper of Gertie's seemed an inborn thing. Abuse and tyranny had not been able to crush it. On the contrary, it had flourished in the midst of the unfavorable influences amid which she had been nurtured. Kindness could accomplish almost anything with her, could convince and restrain. But restraint from any other source was unbearable, and however proper and necessary a check it might be, she was always disposed to resent it. Emily knew that to such a spirit even parental control is seldom sufficient. She knew of but one influence that is strong enough, one power that never fails to quell and subdue earthly pride and passion, the power of Christian humility, engrafted into the heart, the humility of principle, of conscience, the only power to which native pride will ever pay homage. She knew that a command, of almost any kind, laid upon Gertie by herself or Uncle True, would be promptly obeyed, for in either case the little girl would know that the order was given in love, and she would fulfill it in the same spirit. But to provide for all contingencies, and to make the heart right as well as the life, it was necessary to inspire her with a higher motive than merely pleasing either of these friends, and in teaching her the spirit of her divine master, 
Emily was making her powerful to do and to suffer, to bear and to forbear, when, depending on herself, she should be left to her own guidance alone. How much Gertie had improved in the two years that had passed since she first began to be so carefully instructed and provided for, the course of our story must develop. We cannot pause to dwell upon the trials and struggles, the failures and victories, that she experienced. It is sufficient to say that Miss Graham was satisfied and hopeful, true, proud, and overjoyed, while Mrs. Sullivan, and even old Mr. Cooper, declared she had improved wonderfully in her behavior and her looks, and was remarkably mannerly for such a child. End of chapter 12